My name is Tom Wallace, and I am the managing partner of Florida Funders. And welcome to another edition of Florida Funders Angel Investing in Florida podcast. Our pod is all about how to make us better angel investors. One of the things I love most about angel investing is there is always something new to learn. Everything's changing. Everything's dynamic. Always something new to learn or someone new to learn from. And I'm really excited about our, our guest, and I'll introduce him here in a second. Today, our subject's all different. We're going to cross over into the whole crypto blockchain DeFi world. And I will be the first to admit that in this area, it, I'm a bit of a novice, but our guest speaker is not. So we're all in for a treat. But before we get started, just real quickly, for those of you who are not familiar with Florida Funders, we are a hybrid between a venture capital firm. We're on our third fund and a network of angel investors. We have over 1,500 angel investors who are active and invest alongside of our fund in our deals that we go out and find and bet and do all the due diligence on and all that. We like to say we take the heavy lifting out of angel investing because we do a lot of the work for you. Recently, Business Insights named us the most active tech investor in Florida, which we were very proud of. And PitchBook named us the most active tech investor in the Southeast. That's exciting for us. And over the last four years, which we've been doing this, we've invested in over 50 technology companies. Early stage. We do all early stage. I think most of you are aware of that. So without further ado, welcome, Rennick. Do you say Pally or Polly? Paley. 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 So excited to have you on our, our pod. I have a lot of questions and topics to discuss with you. But before we get started, I met Rennick through his fund, Stratos, which you're going to hear about. And uh, Florida Funders is an investor in his fund. And we usually, Florida Funders usually doesn't do that. But as you hear from Rennick and I'll learn more about Stratus, you'll probably understand why we chose to do that. Uh, Rennick is the founder and CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Stratus Technology Fund. Welcome, Rennick. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Thanks a lot for having me, Tom. Congratulations on all the accolades, especially for, from PitchBook. That's great. Yeah, a little bit about me. I, I have a background in applied math, engineering, quantitative finance, Started my career on Wall Street at a global equity fund and then started Stratos in 2016. And the focus of the firm has always been fintech. And in my view, crypto and and blockchain is really sort of a, a subset of fintech and actually now is becoming bigger than fintech. But we can talk about that and, and, yeah. and why we see that. But I'm also a, a founding team member of a decentralized finance project called Goldfinch Finance. And just for our listeners, a project in your world is what maybe legacy people would call a company. Yeah. So basically, the the reason why the term of project is used, not company, is because ultimately the objective of a lot of these projects is to become a decentralized organization. And so calling it a company sort of implies that it's a more traditional corporate structure and it's not totally accurate. So the, the parlance in the space is project, not company. But we will ultimately be a decentralized global bank. I'm really excited about what we're doing. And it is very important for us in, in driving some of our insights and how we invest in the blockchain and crypto space. You skipped over one part about your, your, your background, which I think most people find interesting. Uh, you have a master's from MIT in quantitative finance. Yes. That is not. <laughs> so you're a lot smarter than me, for sure, and a lot smarter than most of the people on the planet. How did you end up at MIT? 
Well, that, that might be a little bit generous of you. I just happen to be good at math just by virtue of having to do so much of it to get the degrees I got before I went to MIT. But I, I recognized that I had made a decision. I'd spent some time in aerospace engineering and then made the decision that I wanted to be in the investment business and had the view that if I wanted to be differentiate myself in the finance field and investing, having a, a strong background in math would be helpful. I also had this, uh, I guess, primitive desire to be able to come up with some sort of algorithm to help pick stocks and make investments. Because I early in life thought that the fundamental research of having to understand which companies you wanted to invest in was kind of archaic and you know you could use math and AI to do it instead. And so I wanted to learn how to do that. And that's why I went to MIT. And on the back end of that, I kind of realized that everything about that idea was was sort of wrong and that I didn't want to be a quant per se. And I wanted to really understand companies and technology and how the, you know, the fundamentals of things were affecting the world. And so I ended up going and working at a firm that used some quantitative tools to identify opportunities, but ultimately was, you know, very fundamental in its approach to making investment decisions. And so that's how I learned how to invest. And that's how some of the insights that drove me to launch Stratos and, you know, even through today in our investment process were initially developed. So you're working on Wall Street. You work for Sanders, right? If I remember correctly. Correct. And how do you go from there to being in the DeFi crypto world, blockchain world? Yeah. And so maybe I should give a little bit of background on, on Sanders and, and why that was a good place to start for me. And I was very lucky to be hired by Lou Sanders, who runs Sanders Capital. And Sanders Capital is a $40 billion global equity fund. And Lou, prior to launching Stratos, was the CEO and chairman of Alliance Bernstein. A lot of people on Wall Street are familiar with Sanford Bernstein, which is a research house uh, or one of their business lines is research. And so he was really one of the first guys at Sanford Bernstein kind of developing their approach to research and writing 70-page research reports on public stock. And he was doing that in the 70s before anyone else was really doing it. So he's kind of known on the street as being a guy who you know, does very in-depth research and has a value investing approach. And so he taught me to invest. I, I worked with him directly. There were 10 investment professionals while I was at the firm. And that was a, a very fortunate place to start. And I was a generalist, analyst, but I spent a lot of time looking at technology companies and financials. Mm-hmm. And since we were a global equity fund, we had exposure to both U.S. banks, but offshore banks, emerging market banks, and other financial companies as well. And so one of the things that I recognized there was that one, technology was going to drive a lot of the economic growth in our, you know, for the foreseeable future as a result of demographics and also just productivity, right? Productivity ultimately is driven by technological advances. And so if you can identify those things, you know, that would be a a great starting place for investment. And if you look at Lou's portfolio, at least at the time, the two largest overweights relative to the global equity index were the tech and financial sectors. And so that's, that's played out very well for them. And 
you know, looking back in 2014, that was that was before it was obvious that Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple were going to just continue to steamroll. There was a narrative at the time that those companies are priced expensively or they're, you know, sort of fairly priced, but if you have the view that they're going to continue to compound earnings at 30% per year for the next 7 years to where they have today if not more, you know, they are extremely cheap. And so there was a lot of, you know, it was a very interesting time to try and understand tech and the kind of network effects that those businesses were creating. And one of the things that I looked at was, well, this hasn't really happened in finance yet. And a lot of the consumer applications were not very, they didn't have any of the great things that, you know, the companies I mentioned had. And so I felt that it was going to be a great future for investing in fintech. And one of the avenues there also was, you know, blockchain. I, I was introduced to blockchain in undergrad, but really took the time to understand it in 2015 when Ethereum was launched. Because Bitcoin was kind of an interesting proof of concept of blockchain, in my opinion. And uh, Ethereum basically took the Bitcoin blockchain and instead of having it function as a ledger, introduced this idea of a virtual machine, which is just a collection of distributed computing power to actually run programs in a decentralized network directly. And so I looked at that and said, if this works the way that I think it can work, it's going to change the world. And it's going to enable a lot of these financial applications that are potentially possible, but haven't been built yet. And so that was sort of the impetus to say, okay, I want to get involved in this. I want to make a significant bet that this is going to be big. And so I left Sanders and started Stratos. When you compare Bitcoin to, to Ethereum, which we, you were just doing there today, where do you see that? How do you see that playing out? So the way I would put it is Bitcoin is its own blockchain. So what Bitcoin is, is a decentralized and distributed group of computers that are all agreeing on one state of the world. And the state of the world that they're agreeing about is just a ledger that says who owns what Bitcoins. That's it. The actual implementation details of that are, are much more sophisticated. But what I just said is really the essence of it. And so the only thing it exists to do is to agree on a state of the ledger, who owns the Bitcoins. That's it. And so it's remarkable that something that does something so simple is worth you know, collectively a trillion dollars or more. I don't know where the current you know, market cap of Bitcoin is. But for a proof of concept, that's quite a lot of value to be created, which I think is an interesting precursor to what's going to happen in this space. But Ethereum is, is really a whole new universe. It's taking that idea of agreeing on a state of the ledger and increasing its potential exponentially by instead saying, we're going to have this dis distributed group of computers that are going to agree on an entire computational system. So anything that can happen on, on your laptop or, or desktop and any computation that needs to occur or data set that needs to be run or whatever is actually going to occur in this decentralized state. So think about a entire server farm that exists in the cloud, but in a decentralized way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, on 
With Bitcoin, there's only going to be a finite amount of Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Is Ethereum the same way? Technically, no, is the short answer. So if Ether, which is the, you know, the equivalent of Bitcoin for the Ethereum network can be burned and it also can be minted and there's no finite number, it's, it's not like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is actually unique in that it, only ha- it ha- will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever. Most of the sort of more advanced blockchains have the concept of inflation built into them. And that gets into discussion around incentive design and tokenomics and, and things like that, that I don't think we need to get into quite yet. But Ethereum is also in the, it's in a transition state into a different consensus mechanism that maybe is worth talking about. But the value of Ether is driven by supply and demand, just like anything else. But in order to actually use the computing power that exists in the Ethereum network, you have to pay for it with Ether, in essence. And so even though there's not a finite number of Ether out there, as people and computers and companies want to use this computing power on the network, they have to buy the Ether to to use it. And so there's an interesting supply-demand dynamic built into the design of the system overall, which is why we're seeing the some of the driver of the price of Ether is just pure speculation, people just buying it to hold it. But some of it is also people buying it so that they can actually use the network. And that's a really interesting thing, because if you think about, well, what if I had to buy Amazon stock to use AWS? Or what if I had to buy Uber stock to ride in an Uber? You start to create a totally different dynamic around how these things are priced and, and what they can be worth. That's, in, that's very interesting. When you look at the different cryptocurrencies out there, and there's Doge, and there's Polkadot, and there's, and there's so many I'm sh- more of, I'm sure that I'm not aware of. Do you see at some point that there's a fallout here and some of these don't make it and we gets down to just a couple? Or how do you look at that? Yeah, so I, I think first you have to disaggregate the population of, of different coins across what their purpose is. So you've got Dogecoin, which is in some senses like a derivative of Bitcoin, it has some similarities. It's a more energy efficient consensus mechanism. It's not as robust, but it really has no utility. It just exists as sort of a store of value or a, a means of value transmission. But there are other coins that are really should be termed as, as tokens that actually have utility. So they have this, this thing that I just mentioned with, with Ether, where you have to use it, you have to pay to use the Ethereum network with Ether. And so there's a utility to it. There's a need for it other than just holding value or trans. It has a transactional value. Beyond that, it has value in its utility. So you can actually do things with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's your entry to the network, essentially. It's, your, it's actually called gas fees. You, you use it as gas to run the network if you want to run some, some computation. And so most of the ecosystem, at least that we're active in, are these so-called utility tokens that do things. They exist for a reason, but to, to answer your question, what will happen is if you developed a network that ultimately becomes outdated, or there's a, a better network there that people use more frequently, what will happen is the coin value will, will slowly sort of fade to zero because there's no 
demand to actually buy the token because no one's using the network that you've created. And so, yeah, some of the things that we see today will ultimately not exist in, in five or 10 years, but you know, some of those are more obvious than others. So when you look at DeFi, help our, our listeners understand the difference between crypto and DeFi and blockchain and how, how, you, how you look at that. Yeah. So the fundamental technology innovation here is blockchain. So blockchain is essentially a network architecture that enables decentralized computing to interact together and agree on a state of the world. And so from that, all of these other things have emerged. Bitcoin is the first use case of a blockchain network architecture. Then there's Ethereum, then there's Polkadot, Solana, you know, a number of other what you know, are, are termed layer ones in the space. And so from that, you have cryptocurrencies that have been issued out of these blockchain networks. Mm-hmm. So a cryptocurrency, you know, it's sort of a, a blanket term that people use to talk about the space. Sometimes they just say it's crypto. It's not really clear what exactly is being referred to there, whether you're talking about the actual tokens like Bitcoin itself, or if you're talking about the blockchains or, or if you're talking about applications. But what, what DeFi is really referring to is the applications that are being built on top of today, Ethereum, Polkadot, Solana, Celo, a few other of these layer ones. And you can think of them as you know, an application just like one on your computer or one on your phone. It itself is not its own blockchain network, but it's a code base that's designed to interact with something like Ethereum. So it's utilizing the computing power that has been aggregated by these decentralized computers on Ethereum. And it's doing things. It's DeFi is a short for decentralized finance. And it's called decentralized finance because it is a financial ecosystem being built on top of a decentralized network. Where do you see this whole DeFi going in terms of our, our traditional banking system and moving money around the world? How did how did that's got to change dramatically? I would think. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I would say it's it's my belief. I think it's it's shown by our activity in the space that you know we're making. We're obviously very excited about what's going to happen here, and I think just on a first principles basis, you kind of look at the world today and say, how does traditional finance work, and what are its limitations. And then what are the possibilities with DeFi and what's already existing? My view is that, you know, is it five years? Is it 10? I think it's probably on the shorter end of that. But there will be a fully functioning financial ecosystem that it parallels the traditional financial ecosystem, but it exists entirely on the blockchain. And it ends up enabling new functionality and a lot of benefits, especially to, to non-developed markets users that don't currently exist. Can you give us a use case of that? So our, our listeners maybe understand a little better what you're thinking there. Yeah. So I think the simplest place to start is to say, how does capital form today in traditional finance and capital markets? For the most part, it's siloed by country. 
There's the U.S. capital markets. There's the European capital markets. There's Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, and even within that, you know, you've got separate pools of capital by country. And one of the reasons that is is because it's very hard to move money cross border, and there's just a lot of friction there. And the rules are oftentimes different. You have different rule of law in different countries. There's some uncertainty around that. So there's a lot of friction there. And when you think about what DeFi can be and what it already is, it's an international pool of capital. So anyone on earth who has access to the internet can go and interact with DeFi. China is a little bit of an exclusion because of the way that they're regulated, but for the most part, everywhere else, you can go and access DeFi. And so what that's creating is a single global pool of liquidity. And so. If you look at traditional finance, the largest pools of liquidity are the best functioning. They have the lowest cost of capital. They have the typically the best companies orbiting around them. And so, if you think about a state of the world where there's one single large pool of liquidity in DeFi, that's going to create a lot of interesting emergent effects because that suddenly will become the de facto capital market to operate under. So maybe as an example, you know, I'm, I'm in Florida here. I know you're in LA, but we have a, a, a local company called Ampscot. We have a lot of people here from another country that are working, some legally, some not, but they're always sending money back to their home country. And I think they get they pay like a 10% fee to do that. With DeFi, that could be that they could be sending that money back with no cost. Yeah. So remittances are are another byproduct of what I just described to your point. If money can flow around the world in a seamless way, you get one pool of liquidity, but also you have the ability to send money from the U.S. overseas much more easily. And you know, there's another question of, okay, well then, how do you actually use that money in the country that you're in? You know, if you're sending it via crypto, you need to somehow convert it into local currency mm-hmm. so that you can spend it. That's a Coinbase is for, right? In the U.S. And there are m- many other similar companies in you know, emerging markets that do the same thing. It's a crypto on-ramp. But what's interesting is banks are starting to integrate with this so that you can have one bank account that basically holds a crypto version of a US dollar or a real US dollar. The next shoe to drop there is, well, what are the central banks going to do about this? Yeah, because, well, that's where I was going to go because the Federal Reserve announced like a couple of weeks ago that they're really looking into doing their own token, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's where the, this whole thing is going to turn upside down and crypto blockchain is going to really take off. Because if you take a step back and say, how do US dollars actually get to consumers today? It's via the private banking system. The central bank has basically blessed people, certain you know, private banks with the ability to distribute dollars and basically create money. And so if the central bank is distributing the, the money directly, there's not really as much of need for a bank in between. In fact, you can have a crypto wallet on your phone that's holding your digital US dollar, assuming that the Fed decides to create a digital dollar that's compatible with what exists today, which even if they don't, there'll be a way to wrap it and turn it into a derivative version. I, I think this is exciting. And you use words like seamless and easy. And to me, I, I like uh, frictionless, no cost. 
I just, I can't believe this. This just happened to me last week. I deposited a check. I made an investment. I got a check back. It was a sizable check. I deposited it at a local bank, my bank, which is a pretty good sized bank. It's not Bank of America, but it's one of the top 20 banks in the country. They put a hold on the check for seven days before I could access the money till the check cleared. Is that unbelievable in today's day and age? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things wrapped up in that, which is, you know, what's the finality of a transaction in the sense that, you know, if, if you deposit that check, it's more relevant for like ACH transfers that can be reversed. And, you know, there's a whole other discussion around why that makes sense in some cases. But I think what we're highlighting really is just that the consumer experience with traditional banking, even in the United States, which is the most advanced capital markets, is typically not good. <laughs> I've had some not good experiences. That was one of my not good experiences. Now I called, the, I have a relationship with the bank. I called them and they said, you know, we'll, we'll move it along. But I just, so they're playing with your money for seven days that, you know, so they're gaining interest to float on that. I, I, I didn't even know that was legal, but help us understand, like when you look at, you're talking a lot about countries and you look at, you know, America, we like to think that we're the technology leaders of the world, which I think most people would tell you we are, maybe Israel's there, you know, a couple other countries, but China. How does China play into this and how's the U.S. and because China announced that a, a, a yuan, is that what it's called? Yuan, yes, uh, digital yuan, yeah. What's your thoughts on that? How does this play out with the countries? And Yeah, China, China is very sophisticated when it comes to monetary policy. So it's not a surprise to me that they've chosen to do this. You can argue whether China is doing this as an offensive move to try and get ahead of the digital dollar and start to import yuan as a dominant currency via the crypto markets. Because of this global pool of liquidity I'm describing, if you want your your local currency to be distributed globally, this is a godsend, right? You distribute it into this global pool of liquidity and suddenly you can become the global reserve currency that the yuan has always wanted to be. You could also argue, though, that this is more of a defensive move for China because right now they have more than any other country control over their citizens' payments and you know monitoring what's going on with their own currency. And so if they don't create a digital yuan for their population to use, they run the risk of people going around it and using a digital U.S. dollar via the crypto markets and not needing to use the, the yuan anymore. So we'll see how that plays out. But certainly the, the era of central bank digital currencies is, is upon us. And it's going to have some pretty significant implications for global finance. And I think is hugely bullish and a tailwind for blockchain and DeFi. And then the U.S. side of it, you know, we mentioned what the Federal Reserve is doing. And then I know this from, from our previous conversations that the new head of the SEC, which is named Gary Gensler, he was the head of blockchain at MIT. Is that correct? Yeah, he taught a blockchain course at MIT, where I actually in the Sloan School. I think it's you know an interesting indication of of what the SEC is thinking about how important this is going to be. We'll see how he what what kind of you know regulation he wants to impose. I think some some more regulation in the space will be a good thing. I think you know protecting investors is very important. My hope is that. The regulators, the SEC is sophisticated enough to understand 
the nuances here without limiting the growth of the space. Because one of the reasons why the space is growing so quickly is because everything is open source and permissionless. And it, permissionless means I can decide tomorrow that I want to go build a new application and I can build it on top of the Ethereum network and launch it. And other people, anyone around the world can, can come and use it as they please. Now I can, I can have a, a guarded launch and I can only let some people use it if I want, you know, and typically the reason why people do that is for securities regulations reasons. But because of these two factors, open source and permissionlessness, the speed at which new technology is being developed and developed on top of existing technology is remarkable. So when we're talking about the product roadmap at Goldfinch and the things that we're building, every time we have a new conversation about it, there's a new piece of sort of interlinking technology that has been built that can help us achieve the objectives that we want. And so the whole space is compounding on top of itself, which is really exciting. Tell our listeners about Goldfinch, about your investment in Goldfinch and that project. I'm a, I'm a uh, founding team member of Goldfinch Finance, which in its simplest explanation is a decentralized global bank. The rest of the team, save for two other people, are ex-Coinbase engineers. And essentially the vision is when we get to a state of the world where there's a global pool of liquidity, well, we're already there. You know, There's $100 billion floating around in the DeFi ecosystem now. And I, I think we had the view that it probably will get to $400 billion by the end of this year, more in the next 12 months at least, just looking at the compounding rate. There's a desire for people to earn yield in that market. And you know there are some other protocols that have already been very successful in aggregating capital for the purpose of lending it. But all of those protocols lend that liquidity back into the DeFi ecosystem. So the next phase of development is lending to real-world borrowers. And so Goldfinch is aggregating a pool of liquidity to go out and lend to real-world borrowers anywhere on earth, making the benefit of one, taking the liquidity that's in DeFi and distributing it to the real world and making that link between the crypto world and the real world. But then also taking that real world yield and economic productivity that is used to pay the interest on those loans and bringing it back into the DeFi space and sort of creating this link and the self-reinforcing feedback loop, which is really the next big step for DeFi and blockchain overall. How do you start to connect these two worlds? And so the way that Goldfinch is doing this, you, you might ask, okay, well, how are the loans collateralized? How do you know you're not just, you know, you can't use it, write a computer algorithm to go out and make loans to people all over the world and, you know, you're never going to get your money back. Mm. So the smart thing about Goldfinch is that we're, we're going around that problem. What we're doing is we're saying, instead of trying to come up with some sort of AI algorithm to figure out how to underwrite companies and people and sort of generalize across every possible lending opportunity. We said, well, we can get people to do that. And we can get people to do that as long as they have the right incentive structure. It's like, you know, just game theory, basic economics, which is if you look at a private credit fund or, you know, Blackstone, private credit fund, whatever, 
the reason why they do what they do, they go out, they find loans, they underwrite them, they monitor them, they make sure they get their money back and generate a return for their investors. That's all because they have a fee structure that pays them when they make their investors money. That's what runs the whole world of finance. So if we replicate that for Goldfinch and we say, hey, Tom, you've got some people that you think are good credits that you want to lend money to, whether companies or, or people, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You can come on Goldfinch and you can present your investment memo to the Goldfinch community. And if the Goldfinch community agrees with your views that these are good borrowers, then they can choose to fund that loan. And then algorithmically, the sort of large pool of capital that Goldfinch controls will also be funded into the loan. And so you have an incentive to do that because you get paid if your loan gets funded, and then you continue to get paid as the loan performs. And so it's in your interest to find good borrowers and then also make sure that those loans repay. And so if you think about that, it's almost like Uber, but for loan underwriting. How many people in every country on earth exist who can do that effectively? There's quite a lot, you know. but today they work at banks or credit funds or whatever. But if Goldfinch is enabling them to leverage this global pool of liquidity, we suspect that there's a lot of people who will ultimately be able to contribute to this community and help deploy the capital in a decentralized way. It sounds a lot like the crowdfunding space where you have lead syndicators. Um, We don't do this at Florida Funders. We do have an angel network and kind of crowdfunding funding component to what we do. But angels list and some of those, they have lead syndicators who find the deals and then they bring them to the the network, right? And then, then they have the incentive that they get, you know, some cut of the carried interest and they get a following based on the performance of, of the companies that they they end up investing and get other investors to, to invest in. Is that would that be a good analogy? It is. You know, the question then is why is this something that is being enabled by the crypto ecosystem? And if something like that exists, you know, with with AngelList and that's a non- crypto, non-blockchain business. So the first thing is that when you invest in AngelList, you're still using traditional you know, legal documents, yeah, sure. sending I, money I, via ACH. It's not crypto or blockchain or any of that. Yeah. And so the, the point that I'm making here is, okay, well, why does the Goldfinch system need to exist in, in blockchain? Because sometimes you know people will ask, okay, well, what is unique about this? Isn't this just a you know a platform for, for making loans? And so there are a couple of elements to this that combine together to make this much more effective on blockchain. The first one is the, the pool of liquidity I mentioned. The second is the ability to provide liquidity to investors in, in the pool. Because when it interacts with the rest of the existing DeFi ecosystem, If you invest in the Goldfinch pool and you're earning 10% yield and then you want your money back, you can go and sell your stake of the pool in a number of other fully liquid markets that already exist in DeFi. We don't have to create them. And that's things like Uniswap that enable liquidity across currency pairs and create an incentive for people to provide that liquidity in a decentralized and, and trustless way. And if you look at you know the scope of those markets already. It's remarkable how much liquidity there there already is. And then there's well, how do you drive the incentives for different actors on Goldfinch? So Goldfinch has a what's called a governance token or will, and 
essentially it it enables a I'm choosing my words carefully here because I, I don't want to disclose too much about the functioning of this before it launches, but essentially it drives network effects and and for people to provide various behaviors that are beneficial to the ecosystem. Well, it'll be fun to watch and look forward to the launching of Goldfinch. One thing, congratulations, understand Andreessen Horowitz, which is arguably the top VC firm in the world has invested in Goldfinch. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we haven't publicly announced the round yet, but you know the money's all funded and closed. So, congratulations. Thank you. We're getting short on time, and uh, I wanted to ask you a couple things. Just you know, again, a lot of our listeners are angel investors. If you had to choose one crypto to invest in, whether it be Polkadot or Bitcoin or or Ethereum, which which one would you tell them to invest in? And do you think now's a good time to invest, or do you think we're at a bit of a bubble and they should wait? Or Tell us what your thoughts are on that. That's a tough question. You're really putting me on the spot here. So our fund, most of our investing is in pre-launch projects. So it's in the you know the early stage before it, the company actually launches its token and becomes a, a project. There are a few that we're very excited about, but they're private. If you were going to go out and buy a liquid token, I would first say that there's a lot of volatility in the space. <laughs> so be be ready. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> yes, I've I've been holding a number of these for five years now, and have seen significant gains and losses over that period, and just kind of resigned myself to to hold just based on my bullishness in the space. So there's a psychological element of this that uh, is significant, but following that, I would also say. Don't try and time the market, just dollar cost average into it. You know, buy a small position every week for you know the next year or something like that. And so if you were to ask me which ones to invest in, I think put together a portfolio of three. Buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ether, buy some polka dot, the ticker's DOT dot. It's not investment advice, but if you had to ask me. Those are the ones that I think are interesting. And and what do you think of Coinbase buying that stock? Is that a stock you would own, or do you think it's a bit overpriced at this point? I have not looked at it closely enough to have a view on what the valuation is, but I I do think that it's a great company, and they've had some very clever product innovation recently around having their own DeFi wallet that can interact with DeFi directly. So I think that will help them maintain their position as sort of the go-to crypto on-ramp for uh, U.S. investors. Renick, this has been great. And we could talk about this for hours, obviously. I mean, it's such a vast field. It's so exciting. It's, it's so exciting to watch. And to many of us, uh, you know, so, so exciting to learn more about it. I know I put myself in that camp. I'm trying to spend more and more time on crypto and learn as much as I can. So this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on the show. If our listeners want to reach out to you, or how would they find you? Can you share that with them? Check out our website, stratoslp.com. And you can uh, reach out to our email info at stratoslp.com. And by the way, how I re- met Rennick is his partner, Miles, is here in Tampa. So that's how we, uh, we came to know each other. So for those of you who want to learn more about angel investing, please go to floridafunders.com. We have a lot out there for 
potential angel investors. And if you're a founder and you're looking to get funding for your company, we have an application process that might take you all of 10 minutes that will get you in our process to see if it might be a fit for us to fund your company. We're always looking to find fund and help build the next great technology companies. So thanks so much. Rennick, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And to all our listeners, happy investing.